Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Simon from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Let me get a second. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 7th. Today, the unlikely story of how a Tyrannosaurus Rex got to Washington, D.C. And Life After Prison on YouTube. What do you think of the T-Rex? It looks huge, really big. And what, what is it doing? Um, it's uh, eating a dead triceratops. There's a new arrival at the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Our producer Maggie Penman went to the Fossil Hall, which reopened after years of renovations, to interview a panel of dinosaur experts. My favorite dinosaur is... The same one as that one. The T-Rex? Uh-huh. So, um, what do you like about the T-Rex? I like that it's, like, eating, like, the um, triceratops because it has sharp teeth. Because the Tyrannosaurus Rex was just doing it for food. The Natural History Museum is one of the most popular museums in the world. They've never had a T-Rex. They've wanted one for a long time. So the Smithsonian and the Smithsonian Fossil Hall, which like holds the nation's collection of dinosaur fossils, they didn't have a T-Rex until now? There's just not that many of them, to be honest with you. And and they didn't want any old T-Rex. There's, uh, I would say, maybe a dozen or, or slightly fewer super premium T-Rex skeletons in the world. I'm Steve Hendricks. I'm an enterprise reporter here at The Post. I write about everything, basically. Lately, Steve has been writing about dinosaurs, and specifically the story of how this T-Rex ended up at the Smithsonian. Testing, testing. And I just wanted to go a little bit farther and find the woman who found it and ask her to show me where that happened. Maybe they forgot something or left something behind them. A femur bone that's never been seen. You have to look. (laughs) You've got the touch. Well, it all starts with a fascinating woman named Kathy Wonkel, who grew up in Montana. She and her husband, Tom Wonkel, run a ranch in a very arid, remote part of the state, the Montana Badlands, which just happens to be one of the most fruitful dinosaur grounds in the country. I think three or four of the most important T-Rex skeletons ever found are within a few hundred square miles of that spot. Geologists describe it as the way the earth has uplifted and then eroded. There, what you can walk around on is pretty much the ground that the dinosaurs walked around on. The level is is correct and the time is correct. So they were camping with their family on Labor Day weekend in 1988. I was walking along up here on the top of the ridge. Tom was down below. And he said, oh, I think I found something down here. And about the same time, I said, you better come up here. I think I've found something better. And 
So he came up and we could see probably, oh, it would be like the top half of your fingers sticking out of the ground. It was a different color. You could see the bone marrow and some flakes laying off on the ground. And so we just started digging and I just had a feeling that it was going to be something big. They were both careful and eager. They removed some of the surrounding rock with their uh, pocket knife, uh, but then they realized it was a bigger job than a pocket knife could do. So Tom is a former army surveyor. He kind of looked around, got some landmarks on this very remote, arid landscape, and they left. And it was a couple of months before they could come back, but they did. This time they brought some tools, and they removed a couple of long bones. They, they were pretty sure they had a pretty big dinosaur bone. And so where did they take the bones? They put them in a cooler and took them home. Kathy washed them on the sink on the back porch, <laughs> put them in the basement on the ping pong table with all her other collected rocks. Oh, my God. And then tried to figure out, who do you call when you find a dinosaur? Who do you call when you find a dinosaur? <laughs> in Montana, you call the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman. It was a very small museum, but an extremely important one in the world of dinosaur bones. Jack Horner was the founding paleontologist and is one of the most well-known people in the field. They called them. They said, we think we found something. And at Thanksgiving break, they loaded up the station wagon with their three kids and their dinosaur bones, and they drove to Bozeman. So this is where we brought them in. Were they immediately like, oh, yeah, this is a dinosaur? Or? Got the bones out of the car. As Pat Leji, the uh, chief of paleontologists, says, they end up looking at a lot of bones from cows, a lot of rocks. This time he looked in the window of their station wagon and almost right away looked at them and said, I think you better come inside. And you said they had it. How did you say they had it uh, stored in their car? It was in a... <laughs> If I remember, it was in a box, and it was just kind of um, wrapped in a sweatshirt or something like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what do you look for in that pile and say, this is quite possibly... The tip-off was the humerus. humerus, the upper arm bone, and that was the one that was the most obvious. Uh, Kathy describes uh, the scene in 1988 where all these guys were puffing on their Marlboros, looking down at her bones, and then puffing some more and looking down. And finally, Jack says, can you take us to where you found this? Mm -hmm. And so then they were able to recover basically an entire T-Rex skeleton. Yeah, it was a massive excavation. I said in my story it was buried under layers of earth and bureaucracy alike because it was on federal land next to a wildlife refuge on a reservoir controlled by the Army Corps of Engineers. So just figuring out who to ask for permission to dig took months. It was more than a year before they got a full crew out there, but they got the whole thing out in about a month. So fast forward to the last few years, and the Smithsonian basically got the folks in Montana to agree to give over their T-Rex skeleton so that it could live in the nation's capital. What was the process of getting that skeleton from Montana to Washington, D.C.? Well, again, the first challenge was a bureaucratic one. The skeleton actually belongs to the Army Corps of Engineers because they own the land at the reservoir where it was found. The Smithsonian 
went to them and asked them for a 50-year loan of the skeleton to become the centerpiece of the new fossil hall. Not every Montanan is happy to see it go. They kind of have a lot of local pride in their fossils. The Museum of the Rockies has a beautiful display of many important dinosaur finds. But it's going to become the nation's T-Rex, and I think there's also some pride in that as well. Getting it to Washington took about five years. They took it apart. They stored it carefully. They brought it to D.C. for sort of a welcoming ceremony. Wait, how, how, did, how did they bring it to D.C.? <laughs> Do you just, like, ship it box by box? It was actually by FedEx. You're kidding. Well, I think it was a special <laughs> FedEx truck. It had a picture of the T-Rex on the side. And, oh, no way. <laughs> and it was uh, packed just as carefully as you can imagine in all kinds of custom-made foam baffles and wooden crates, loaded very carefully, driven very carefully. They take a lot of care with these bones, which are both extremely heavy and extremely fragile. So now that it's here, what does it mean that the Smithsonian finally has a T-Rex? It's the most visited museum in the United States, the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian. And 7 million people a year go to that museum. They're quite thrilled that one of the finest specimens of an actual T-Rex skeleton is going to be so visible to so many people. It is way more than, than the T-Rex. It is their fossil hall. So, the, you know, the big picture is that it, it examines ancient Earth. Um, it goes back 3.7 billion years. Whoa. And the, the, way, the way it's arranged is that it starts in the present and goes backwards in an effort to help visitors understand those kinds of numbers. Peggy McGlone covers museums for The Post. She profiled the curator of the exhibit. And so doing that, I've visited with him in the hall a bunch of times over the last 18 months or so. Um, and I've been able to see the, you know, the way it's come together. My name is Matthew Carano, and I'm the curator of Dinosauria at the National Museum of Natural History. We were there last week. That was the latest, my latest visit. And there were still, you know, dozens of construction workers and they're on ladders and they're drilling and they're doing the last of the signage and lighting. I can only imagine how precarious that job must have been of getting all of these dinosaur skeletons set up. And you're in the middle of a construction zone, but you're having to navigate around, you know, make sure you don't like... Like run the pipe into right, <laughs> into right. a, a T Rex. Yes, right. So you have these like you know priceless artifacts, and then also you know somebody's drilling into the wall to put a sign. You're absolutely right. But it was beautifully orchestrated. Um, they know exactly what they're doing. We're standing in the central walkway of the new exhibit. We are almost directly beneath the neck of the dinosaur Diplodocus. So we are next to the Jurassic platform of our exhibit. They've redone the exhibit hall, so it's restored to more of its old-fashioned grandeur. Big soaring ceilings, beautiful lighting, updated technology, so there's some TV screens and, and computer interactives. And then, of course, there's the giant skeleton fossils, which are just tremendous. People are going to come in, and they're going to, I hope, be very excited about the dinosaurs and the other fossil animals they see. And I hope the first thing that they feel is that they seem much more like living things than than they're used to seeing. Um, and that that kind of is the first step of getting them really engaged with the exhibit as a whole. And that if they hang around here for a little while, they eventually leave with a sense that this is a really vibrant story, the story of life on Earth, 
that it's something that really directly connects with them and their lives, and that it's really useful for us to understand it, not just interesting, because it helps us think about the world we have now and the world we might have in the future. Is there anything different about this exhibit compared to other fossil halls? The curator spoke to us about how there's a tension between reality and drama and that you need to show these creatures as they were more than just as predators. You know, not everything was dramatic. So some of the creatures are posed almost sleeping or (laughs) protecting a nest, protecting their young. Not everything is that, you know, dramatic chomping on on another. Even though they're these amazing animals and they seem sort of fantastical, they're very real and the more real they seem, I think, the more it's, it's possible to connect to that. So it's why there's a dinosaur standing over there scratching its nose the way like your dog might do, right? It's just supposed to be something. This is what animals do, right? And they're, they're animals. And so a lot of things they did, bizarre as these animals are, their behaviors are probably not utterly bizarre. They're probably more familiar than anything else. In fact, most of these things should probably be asleep if I were portraying what they did with most of their time. What are the big takeaways that curators and paleontologists want people to get from this exhibit? I think he would say that he wants people to think of them as connected, that this is an ancient time in Earth, but it's not an alien planet. It's very easy to see a paleontology hall, however spectacular it is, and come away with it, you know, you may as well have just seen an exhibit about what life might be like on Mars for all the importance it has to you in your daily life, right? And so I think it, w- it was really incumbent on us to do it in the way we've done it. Um, otherwise, it really becomes kind of a hollow message. And I think the story is important. It's not just about a philosophic view of, you know, where you fit into the world. It's that, you know, all of the things that we live with today have come to us in bits and pieces from the past. We've inherited all of our worlds, you know, from different past worlds. And so therefore the future world will inherit from us different things. It's all part of this big stream of time. And so there are things that it can teach us and that we can learn and put things into context by going back, sort of looking at the past to inform the present to then help us maybe in the future. The exhibit opens to the public on Saturday. It's a big moment for paleontologists, but it's also a big moment for Kathy Wonkel and her family. I think they're thrilled. They're coming to Washington for the opening ceremonies, plural. They're getting a private tour of the, of the new display. And Kathy Wonkel's name is going to be on a placard in that hall for the, at least the next 50 years. And that's something some people pay millions of dollars to get their name on one of the Smithsonian walls. Steve Hendricks and Peggy McGlone are just two of the many reporters who have written about this new exhibit for The Post. To read more and to find out how to visit the nation's T-Rex, go to postreports.com. My favorite of the fossils was um, the first stegosaurus of its kind. Which one has the most fossilized? Probably the shark or the dinosaur. I think I know. What would you give an overall degree? Um, A plus, 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 plus. I would give it a dinosaur, a dinosaur book library. So you can buy that books about dinosaurs. That's a good um, idea.
Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. Listen to the story of the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of Donald Trump to President of the United States. Download and listen today. I will never forget getting arrested, going to jail that very first day, and feeling like my life was over. December 21st, 2008 was not a good day for Joe Guerrero. I was arrested for, I think, eight charges altogether. Possession with intent to distribute cocaine, possession of a firearm by a nonviolent offender, just a slew of charges. For Joe, it was hard to think about anything but the prospect of being locked up. And it was a very depressing time, to say the least. I remember I slept for at least the first day and a half, didn't eat anything. I was sick, emotionally and physically sick, and not from a drug withdrawal, but from realizing that, Joe, you really did it this time, and this could potentially be the end for you. The day in 2015 when Joe got out of prison wasn't any better. You know, the day that I got released was just as scary as the day that I got arrested. And realizing that it's going to take probably the hardest work in your life, if not the absolute hardest work in your life, to make it out here and to not go back. 83% of former inmates end up back in prison nine years after they're released. Joe didn't want to be one of those people, so he did something new. I read an article about social media and about videos, and I said, you know, maybe that could be something that I could do. I could actually come home and possibly focus on creating videos to, again, showcase what it's like to come home and to really want to do better. Joe's YouTube channel is called The After Prison Show. His videos cover all kinds of topics, from how to make a prison tattoo to how to readjust to life outside. Hey, Skipper. We just adopted him the other day from the SPCA. He's a shelter cat, an ex-prisoner just like me. Almost four years later, Joe has 1.2 million subscribers. His videos have nearly 200 million views. And Joe's not the only person doing this. So there's a handful of these channels out there that have prison-related content. Peter Hawley writes about tech for The Post. He says that there's a small community of people who have spent time in prison who are finding success by posting videos about what it's like to be in prison and what it's like to make it out. They're all run by former prisoners who are now out and living their life. The content mostly is them answering questions about basic things about life in prison. From another one of our viewers, is toilet wine common? Now, toilet wine. They also interview people who have just gotten out of prison. It's great to Free see. at last. Free at last. And they discuss issues related to prison reform, drugs. What's violence like in prison? How do you use the bathroom in prison? The most intimate thing you do as a human being is take a and you don't even have that privacy in there. Joe Guerrero got started after he got out of prison. He had really no idea what he was doing. And he felt like he had such few options, there was a really good chance he was going to end up back behind bars. You know, when I came home this time, I vowed to do things differently, but I did that on every possible level. Drugs had been a problem for me in my past. I vowed to absolutely make sure that that would never again be a part of my life because I was scared to death. I was scared to death that this was my final chance. Joe had been in prison for eight years after a lot of run-ins with law enforcement, and he gets out and he has no job prospects, no life. He's barely talking to his family. 
And so almost as a way to prove to himself that this time he wasn't going to go back into jail, he began just documenting his reintegration into society. Damn, I hate rainy days. Rainy days remind me of unproductiveness. And I really hate unproductiveness. So I didn't know anything about vlogs versus interviews, nothing along those lines. I guess what I really thought that I was creating was a reality show. So I wasn't thinking of it in terms of per se videos because this was my reality. And after about seven months, it starts to take off. I remember coming home on my lunch breaks from this job just to edit a video that would get no views at all, maybe a hundred views. So this one day while at work, I remember watching this one particular video that I had uploaded months ago actually begin to take off. And this thing was getting like 20,000 views an hour. And suddenly there's a, a video he made about how to make a tattoo gun in prison. In prison, you have to have a hustle to survive. My hustle while I was incarcerated was tattooing. And it got 2 million views. And he was like, okay, maybe I've got something here. And suddenly the channel starts getting more and more traffic. And then now three years later, he's got 700 videos. It's enough to where he doesn't even have to have a normal job. He quit his job as a, as a day laborer at a concrete factory. And now he makes a six-figure income. This is his whole life. And what do we know about who is watching his shows? From what they've told me, and I've talked to a handful of these guys who, who have these channels, it's a pretty diverse audience. It's people who are just like me, who are really curious about life inside prison. It's also people who are preparing for prison. There's a lot of people who are sentenced but haven't yet gone into prison, especially white-collar criminals. And they'll either hire people or they'll look at YouTube now to find out how to prepare for prison. It's also just... All sorts of people are now curious about prison, and I think it's because prison has become such a large part of our politics and our dialogue that people want to know more about prison. The shows are all fairly similar in that they, they're all about stories, things that happen to them inside prison. There's a lot of cooking shows. You know, they answer a lot of questions that just most of us have about life in prison, like how do you bathe in prison? How do you deal with gang members in prison? What if you want to get a tattoo in prison? Or what happens if somebody assaults you in prison? How do you protect yourself? How do you fight? How do you make weapons in prison? That's a big one. I was watching a video earlier today about how to take batteries, attach them to razor blades, and then attach that to a string that you can use as a whip to protect yourself. Oh, my God. And then he tries it out on a watermelon on, on, on the video. And, like, you learn how, like... <laughs> I'm sure that's entertaining. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty entertaining. He's, he's pretty serious about it, though. He's like, okay, I need to modify it this way so it's a bit more effective. So there's a lot of different content. And when you think about the kinds of stories that a lot of people are familiar with from prison, things that you see in the in media or things that you see in TV or movies, a lot of those stories are like one of two things, right? It's either about how prison is so awful or about people trying to better themselves in prison in this sort of patronizing way. And it feels like this is something that people who have been to prison, who are going to prison, who's loved ones are in prison, like that this is actually much more relevant to their lives and their experiences. Yeah. And in fact, you have a lot of people who have relatives in prison who are watching these shows because they really want to know like, well, how does my loved one make pizza in prison? How are they surviving? There's very little information that was getting out of prison before shows like these. And this is giving people a much different view of what the day-to-day -day reality of life behind bars is. So I do feel like there is more content about prison that is not just like a cop show or like a depressing drama, but there's that podcast ear hustle that, that I listen to. It's really great. And it talks about kind of the more mundane day-to-day -day realities of living in prison. Why do you think that stuff like this is becoming more popular? There's a few things. And I think one of the main reasons is that 
so many people are connected in one way or another to people who are in prison. There's now 2 million people, more than 2 million people in the United States that are in prison in some form. So I think prison is on our minds, but I think also what these new formats are doing, like Orange is the New Black or Ear Hustle and now this YouTube show, is that they're allowing prisoners to dictate their own narrative for the first time. And I think that's unique for viewers. I think when you can hear what it's actually like from the person who experienced it, as opposed to a movie like The Green Mile, you're getting a rawness and an authenticity there that you don't get elsewhere. And it's really compelling content. Peter, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Peter Hawley writes about tech for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalie Costica. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music for the show. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.